Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I'm Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. On today's pod, new reports show that American workers are feeling extra unhappy these days. So we'll get to the bottom of the great gloom of 2023. We'll also discuss how Elon Musk is changing the course of the Ukraine war with the flick of a switch. Then Chinese smartphone maker Huawei shocked the world by dropping a 5G chip way more advanced than anyone expected. Plus, we've got the stats from Yelp's most photographed restaurants of the year, and it ain't your local Golden Corral. It's Friday, September 8th. Let's ride. Toby, I have to ask you, why did you glue your feet to the ground of the U.S. Open last night? Oh, Neil, I have my reasons. But for anyone who doesn't follow our Instagram account, which you should at MB Daily Show, I did a Toby takeover last night at the U.S. Open. My main goal was to try and secure the Honey Deuce Cup, and I succeeded where Neil failed. It's on my desk right now. But then, yes, the match was interrupted by these climate protesters, one of which glued his feet, his bare feet to the ground. It was amazing, Neil. The crowd instantly united around not liking this person as you might imagine you pay a lot for a ticket you don't want your experience disrupted like that but also a fun detail was my section was pretty far away from where things were going down and so everyone had their iphones out and were using kind of the 14x zoom feature kind of as a telescope to look at what was going on so it it truly felt like an apple ad for me with everyone using like this this great feature so yeah it was amazing bearish on the binocular industry yeah and bullish on on the iphone industry okay now Now let's jump into our first story of the day, where Apple is taking a bit of a bruising over in China. Yesterday, China announced plans to expand a ban on the use of iPhones in government departments and state companies. Now, foreign devices like iPhones have long been discouraged in sensitive departments, but to see the ban expand in scope is not great for Apple. Despite the rising tensions between the US and China, China is still a massive market for Apple. Last year, it pulled in $74 billion in sales in the region, and even as Apple tries to diversify away from China, it's still a major manufacturing hub for the company. But the real nasty surprise for Apple this week was that Chinese smartphone maker Huawei shocked the world by releasing a smartphone equipped with a 5G chip. Most people in the industry didn't think it was possible for a Chinese company to produce technology like that given sweeping efforts from the U.S. government to restrict access to chip chip technology in the region. So, Neil, all of a sudden, Apple's future in China, where it has enjoyed three decades of sales growth, looks to be a little bit on yeah. shaking footing. It's kind of like a double whammy here. I don't know if they're related. Some are speculating that, that they are. This Huawei uh, new phone coming out, I think it's called the Mate 60 Pro, which is quite good and much, you know, much better than anyone suspected. And at the same time, this ban. Uh, So I just want to back up. If anyone recognizes the name Huawei, it's because there was a lot of news about this company in like 2018, 2019, during the trade war years. Uh, They want to build, they're a 5G telecom equipment company in addition to being a smartphone maker. And they wanted to build all this 5G telecom equipment across the Western world, to which a bunch of Western companies like the UK, the Netherlands, the US said, 
no out of fears that it would be used by the Chinese government to snoop on our citizens. So the U.S. hit Huawei with a ton of sanctions, like restricted a lot of access to U.S. technology and crippled this company. This company was like in the dumps. And then slowly but surely over the past few years, they've been progressing, 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 leading up to this moment where they absolutely just shocked the world. It's kind of like a Sputnik moment for China here. Yeah, I've seen the take basically is that our chip ban on their um, on Huawei kind of backfired on us. And what it did instead was spur this huge innovation moment. And they got them to this this point that we didn't think that they could get to. And then also a lot of people are saying to have they violated these sanctions or has someone in the U.S. violated these sanctions? Because not only did they produce the chip in order to uh, create a 5G-enabled phone, they also produce all the other components that you need to run a 5G phone, like power amps, switches, filters, all these other parts of the uh, what makes up a smartphone. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are scratching their heads saying, like, how did they actually get to Do this it. point like 10 years before we expected them? Yeah, the U- and the U.S. is officially investigating what's going on here. You know what I think we need is these guys who fix the uh, who took apart the uh, Mc, the, the McFlurry machines <laughs> yeah, the to, to grab guys. this phone and see what's inside because no one actually knows. But these guys are so good at it; they can fix a McDonald's ice cream machine. <laughs> I think they can figure out what's going on here. But uh, this has been not good for Apple. It's lost two hundred billion dollars in market cap over the past two days. Shares are down about seven percent, which is a lot for Apple because yeah, it's we- worth like almost more than two trillion dollars. Um, yeah, and then zooming out, I mean, we have the the next iPhones are going to be yeah. re- unveiled this week, uh, setting the stage for the holiday period. So this is like a really, all of a sudden, there's a lot of focus on Apple where, I mean, in the past couple of years, it's literally just been Apple kept getting bigger and bigger, just has been cruising through little rough patches here and there. But now we have a lot of focus on this next Apple event. Obviously, the USB-C is going to be released, or we're hoping it's going to be released. So that that's probably going to be the major news on that front. All right, uh, let's move on. Maybe all those cringy trends of quiet quitting, bare minimum Mondays, focus on anything other than work Fridays. Have a, I just made that up. <laughs> have a kernel of truth. Because a few recent reports show that employees in the U.S. are really disgruntled with their situation. American employees are now more, more unhappy now than they were during peak COVID, says a new report from HR platform Bamboo HR. This survey of workers across 1,600 different companies found that employee sentiment has dropped significantly since 2020 and has declined at a rate 10 times faster than the past three years. So don't trust this survey. Okay, let's head to the ADP Research Institute, an arm of the major payrolls company, which just took the pulse of American workers and found pretty much the same thing. Employee engagement, resilience, and connection with their employers dropped uh, from June last year. Why is this happening? And this could be any number of reasons, uh, from pay not keeping up with inflation, the prospect of layoffs, return to office mandates, but they're all conspiring to create what Bamboo HR calls the great gloom of 2023. Yeah, I mean, this there was a lot to unpack in these industry reports, but definitely like the big thing was a return, a, a pushback against the return to the office yeah. policies that you're seeing uh, pop up everywhere. I mean, we just saw Grindr, which is uh, the the dating app company. They kind of mandated that employees come back to the office two days a week and 45% of the company resigned. They had 178 employees, 45 people, 45% just said, all right, if you're going to make us come in the office, we're just not coming back at all. And you're kind of seeing that across lots of companies. There was Deloitte, there was this Deloitte report that said if 
we had to go back to the office five days a week. 66% of remote workers said they'd quit their jobs, which honestly, I feel like that's low because if we just had 45% of Grinder quit for two days a week, you'd expect the yeah. five-day-a-week crew to numbers to uh, be even higher. It does seem like there were other issues going on at Grinder. They were attempting to unionize mm -hmm. and the company was pushing back, so that may have led to maybe a greater resignation than usual. But there's no surprise here that tech is the tech workers are declining in happiness the fastest out of any industry. And I think that's because the CEOs in that industry have done a complete U-turn on remote work in 2020 and 2021. It was like, yeah, you can work wherever you want. We're, we're super remote friendly. We can all you know, be super productive. And then they are completely changing their tune in 22. 2022 and 2023, it's been this slow burn of being like, yeah, come back. Okay, we, we want you to come back. All right, now you need to come back. Yeah. And you see uh, CEOs like Andy Jassy being, you know, s stating flat out that if you don't want to come back to the office, then we don't want you to work here. And that may be a mechanism to also, you know, soft lay off some employees that yeah. they don't want coming back. Uh, so also from this HR study uh, from Bamboo HR, there were some other nuggets and we got to see what are technically the happiest and unhappiest industries. The happiest industry was actually construction. And a lot of people were just pointing to the fact that ongoing work and high wages have just helped make that industry happier relative and to other And just working with your hands outside. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know about that part. It's probably the pay and the, and the yeah, because I, I don't know. I mean, it's still a, a, a tough job. Yes. And then the unhappiest industries are education and healthcare, both of those you you can kind of uh, posit why it would, be, would it would be the case. I mean, education, very low salaries, <laughs> very a lot of work, a lot of work. Salaries. Same thing with, with healthcare, to be honest, and especially coming off the pandemic, just burnout is, is, yeah. is a big issue, too. So that's the happiest and unhappiest industries. All right, moving on. I know we are both pretty hyped for Walter Isaacson's biography of Elon Musk that hits bookstores next week. But excerpts from the book have already been leaking, and they are juicier than a Georgia peach. According to an excerpt of the book obtained by CNN, last year, Elon Musk secretly told engineers to shut off Starlink satellite communications near the Crimean coast to foil a Ukraine sneak attack on a Russian naval fleet. Musk was spooked by the prospect of Russia retaliating with nuclear weapons, telling Isaacson Starling was not meant to be involved in wars. But Starlink has been very involved in the Ukraine war from almost the beginning. Its internet beaming satellites have provided vital communications infrastructure to Ukraine after Russia invaded and wiped out a lot of the country's connectivity. So when Musk ordered Starlink to be shut down, like he did in the case of the sneak attack last year, Ukraine's military gets completely discombobulated. It almost can't function without Elon goodwill. So at a high level, this episode shows just how much power Musk has accumulated through SpaceX and Starlink to the point where U.S. military leaders consider him an unelected official. It's crazy to think about, but it's true that wars and the current geopolitical order might hinge on the whims of one meme-loving billionaire. I know. And I mean, this story kind of, or this excerpt harkens back to the Ronan Farrow piece that was released earlier, this big investigative deep dive into Elon Musk and his relationship with the powers that be, the U.S. government. I mean, you have NASA giving major contracts to SpaceX to figure out how to better launch sa satellites. Then you have him kind of putting America's EV future on his back, especially with the charging stations. And then obviously you have the Starlink situation in Ukraine. And uh, just to be clear, though, like the reason he was nervous about uh, this Ukrainian attack was he thought, in his personal opinion, based off his conversation with other Russian officials, that it would escalate into maybe nuclear war in Crimea. But again, like 
that's the alarming part is that it, it hinges on his opinion of the situation, yeah. and he's literally holding sway over what does and doesn't happen in this U- Ukrainian war. And a lot of people think he's kind of in uh, Putin's pocket a little bit because he put out that peace plan that ceded a lot of territory mm-hmm. to Russia. So this guy is just a huge power broker. Not only does he own SpaceX, Starlink, uh, you know, Tesla, and energy, uh, the future of energy here, but he also owns Twitter or X now. And that's where a lot of governments used to communicate. Mm-hmm. And in the previous regime of, of Twitter, a lot of state-backed propaganda outlets uh, from Russia, China, and Iran were flagged as such, and they were demoted on people's feeds. And he removed those. So now, you know, a Chinese propaganda arm, a Russian propaganda arm can can post a lot on Twitter and they'll get into your feed. So that was, and, and the reason this is alarming is because Elon Musk is not elected by anybody. Right. He is... He has shares in Tesla and all of these other companies, so he's beholden to his business interests. And where does Tesla sell a lot of its vehicles? Where does it get subsidies to build plants is China. So this is why this is alarming uh, the national security apparatus. Yeah, but honestly, though, some of what he's doing is at odds against some of his best interests in business. Because one of the ex- one of the other excerpts from this book was that part of the reason why SpaceX is or uh, yeah Starlink is active in Ukraine was. SpaceX was just doing it on their own goodwill. They were footing the bill. And so SpaceX uh, officials were trying to get the U.S. government to pay for Starlink being up. And the, the, the president of SpaceX was really mad because he said he literally had a $145 million check ready to ha- handed to me from the, the Pentagon. And Elon Musk tweeted, the hell with it. We'll just keep funding the Ukraine government for free. And so he like undermined this deal. So it is this weird thing where the power he gets from being able to pull these strings is even superseding money making uh, from the companies that he owns. So it is an interesting thing to see for sure. All right, Neil, before we jump into the next story, we're going to take a quick break. Okay, Neil, it's time for our Friday segment, Stock of the Week, Dog of the Week, where we bring you one stock that just landed the first ever quad axle and one stock that forgot to take its skate guards off. As always, we are just humble podcasters, so please do not take any of this as financial advice. Neil, you won the pre-show Mario Kart race, so you're up first. What's our Stock of the Week? (laughs) Wow, we went from Winter Olympics (laughs) to video games there. Either way, I love the opening. Okay, my stock of the week is Soho House. Shares of the London-based membership club are up 12% this week after its CEO revealed to Bloomberg that it's plotting a big expansion across the United States. What is Soho House? Well, I've only been allowed in twice, but it's an exclusive membership club that's geared towards creatives instead of buttoned-up finance types. Very attractive people go there to eat, drink, socialize, and the one in Dumbo in Brooklyn has a pool that overlooks Manhattan. It's quite bougie and costs $4,900 a year. Soho House does have locations in major U.S. cities like New York City and Los Angeles, but its executives think think there's lots of opportunity and wealthy people in other metros as well, like Portland, Oregon and Charleston, South Carolina. So it's planning on opening up spots there as well as four other cities. But to me, the most interesting part of Soho House's expansion is that it's part of this wave of companies that cut their teeth on the coast, and now they're attempting to conquer middle America. So Sweetgreen and Chipotle, two chains that originally catered to downtown office workers, are both planning expansions in smaller towns across the country. Sweetgreen is even adding 
adding salami and barbecue sauce to some of its folds. If you aren't convinced, it wants to expand its user base beyond yuppies and Flatiron. <laughs> it's so interesting to me because Soho House, when it went public, didn't do very well. Like their shares halved in their first year post IPO, but now they're up 50% since the beginning of this year. So clearly investors are kind of on board with this expansion plan. But to me, it's such an interesting and fine balance between you want to keep the mystique and the exclusiveness, but at the same time, you need to grow. You're a public company. And so, so I think the way Soho House navigates this is they keep this really chunky wait list. And so they have oh, 95,000 yeah. people. So they can always point to that number and say, look it, we got 100,000 people people who want to get in that we're denying right now. So I think that's how you balance. If I'm the CEO of Soho House, I go, let's keep the wait list chunky, right. but still keep opening these other locations. That's my that's my playbook. That's pretty good. Do you think we would get in if we applied? I hope so. I don't know. Uh, that's it's always like, if we were the ninety five thousandth and one <laughs> yeah. person. It's like it, it preys on like your popularity. Like, would yeah. I be popular enough? I mean, there's so it's pretty nice in there. I gotta say. Yeah, let's. I, you've been twice. I've never been, so you're you're already ahead of the game. Gotta have some friends. Okay, Neil, our dog of the week is Manchester United. Yes, Manchester United, the Premier League football club, is a publicly traded company, and that company is not doing well. Shares of Man U are down nearly 15% this week after reports that the club's owners, the U.S.-based Glazer family, won't go through with a sale of the team after all. So Ineos founder Jim Ratcliffe, who is Britain's richest man, as well as a Qatari billionaire, had both been engaged in serious talks to buy the club from the Glazers, but apparently neither has met the family's asking price of around $7.5 billion. Neil, the Glazers are one of the most hated families in English sports right now, as they've repeatedly clashed with supporters over the years, pretty much since buying the club back in 2005. Fans never really got over the fact that they borrowed 500 million euros against the club in order to finance the deal, which plunged it into debt. And now, 18 years later, there's still obviously a lot of tension in yeah. the relationship. I just love how angry English soccer fans get at their <laughs> yeah. owners, and they stage these very intense protests, way more intense than what you saw last night <laughs> right. at the U.S. Open. Toby, as a Man U fan, do you want the Glazers gone? Well, they it's two sides of the coin because they've actually invested a ton of money in buying players. Whether those were the right players to buy is definitely up in the air. So they still are investing in the club, although the stadium's kind of getting a little rickety. So I, I want them out at this point because like there's just too much tension and they often hold on to players who have bad attitudes because they don't want to spend more money on new players. So yeah. And we're not doing that well on the pitch. No. Like two, we've lost two of our first four games. Not doing Ooh, great. You know who's doing well is Liverpool. Oh my god. I and here's guess. my stat for Liverpool. I saw this on Twitter yesterday. Since signing for Liverpool, Mohamed Salah has received more yellow cards from celebrating goals versus Manchester United at Anfield, Liverpool's home base, than Manchester United have scored goals there. Okay, that's a disgusting stat. Why did you have to do that to me <laughs> on this Friday? Oh my gosh. That's an incredible stat. Yeah. Uh, he is quite good. All right. Uh, our second to last story. Remember that AI-generated Drake song that went viral a few months ago? Well, it could win song of the year at the Grammys. The anonymous creator of the song Ghostwriter submitted it for a Grammy in both best rap song and song of the year. And in response, the CEO of the Recording Academy, Harvard, Harvey Mason Jr., said it would be absolutely eligible because it was written by a human. As Morning Brew writer Molly put it in this morning's newsletter, it might be the biggest sign yet that mainstream music is entering its AI era. And Ghostwriter wants to take us there. Not, satisf not satisfied with Grammy eligibility, the team behind the anonymous music creator just 
released a new AI-generated song mimicking the voices of Travis Scott and 21 Savage, and in a post below the release declared, the future of music is here. Artists now have the ability to let their voice work for them without lifting a finger. They told the rappers, if you're down to put it out, I will clearly label it as AI, and I'll direct royalties to you. Respect either way. Yeah, I think it's really smart from Ghost Rider or the team behind Ghost Rider to align himself with the artists themselves because, again, this could feel like an existential threat to an artist by saying, hey, we're literally cloning your voice and replacing you, but he's kind of framing it as we're actually giving you more leverage. You can make money now without lifting a finger. You can get more output from less input, which is kind of the whole promise of AI. So I thought that was a really savvy move from Ghost Rider. And then it's also just, I would, <laughs> I've said this before and I'll say it again, but I would hate to be the people making the rules for the Grammy uh, like nominations because it's such a gray area. Like how much AI is too much AI? Obviously, like you've had some Beatles songs come out with touched up voices of John Lennon. So you need like, why would you deny like a new Beatles song just because it has a little AI in it? So there's so many little different nuances to everyone. But I think it's smart that the Grammys are embracing AI. Yeah, I think they have to. And the guy, Harvey Mason Jr., he he gets it. And right. he's he called up Ghostwriter. Ghostwriter has an incredible reputation right now. Like, this guy is or this team. It's a, it's a team behind it is super savvy. They are doing things very thoughtfully it seems the the song itself i mean i was listening to <laughs> yeah. it this morning it's really not bad it's, i think that's the thing like it's yeah. a good song the technology has come to the point where you can produce viable songs so uh the ceo of the recording academy called up ghostwriter and said we need to talk like i really want to hear what your thoughts are about ai and music and ghostwriter showed up in costume in disguise with a, a voice enhancer a voice distorter so Completely He's committing to the played bit. the part, yeah. and I think the whole mystique around uh, this creator is definitely uh, playing it up. But mm -hmm. yeah, this is something that um, not only the Grammys are contending with, but um, record labels too, and they want to protect our artists' IP. So we'll see how this shakes out, but it definitely seems like the AI era of music is here. The AI era of everything is here, and you're seeing that play out across the creative disciplines. I mean, it's a big sticking point in the actor and writer strike about what happens to uh, their likeness, the actor's likeness and the written works and all of the intellectual uh, copyright, intellectual property, copyright protections around these creative works. So we'll see how it plays out. But it would be crazy if this song won an award. Yeah, I don't know I if don't, it will, though. Yeah, I, the probably. problem is also it needs to have commercial viability. That's one of the other planks of getting nominated or awarded a Grammy is you have to be able to sell it. And when this song originally came out, it was on Spotify, YouTube Music, all of those, but they took it down. Uh, so now the new song that um, what's his name? Travis Scott and 21 Savage. That Ghostwriter just released is just on uh, like this, the social media services. Still bangers, probably won't win though. All right, Neil, for our final story, I want to talk about the most photographed restaurants in the US. Yelp released its annual report on where people were snapping away the most yesterday, and we have a repeat winner. For the sixth year in a row, Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen located in, on the Las Vegas Strip was the most photographed place to eat on Yelp. In total, four restaurants from Las Vegas clocked in in the top 25. New York came in with three, including the famous Cats Delicatessen and Harry Potter New York. But it was California who topped the list with five restaurants in total. Some other takeaways from this, 
this list, Neil, Adela's Country Eatery in Hawaii was the highest reviewed and the only one on the list to get five stars from Yelp eaters, while Gianni's, an Italian place in Miami, was the lowest rated at three and a half stars. Neil, any surprises? Have I been there? Not so, no, to uh, Adela's? Uh, anyway, um, no surprises. It's Vegas. <laughs> it's Vegas. You, you're supposed to take pictures. It's the whole point. It's not about substance. It's about the appearance of substance. But this beef Wellington. Right. It's all about the beef Wellington. I went through their menu and thought about which would be the most photographed. And I saw the sticky toffee pudding. That would probably get yeah. it. The beef Wellington, obviously. And then maybe the lobster risotto as well. We should make the beef Wellington. I would do it on film because it's very famous and you get that cross section. Oh, yeah. It's all about the cross section. <laughs> Did you see the video of this chef? Did I show you the chef on one of Gordon Ramsay's reality shows? He made a uh, he made the beef Wellington and he presents it to Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay takes a bite so dramatic and was like said something like this was as good as i've made it and the guy just starts Start crying yeah just weeping i totally relate to that because the amount of pressure you're under on those cooking shows i'm under pressure just cooking alone in my house i want to cry so doing it in front of gordon i i give him a pass so talking about you know are you a phone eats first guy Oh, phone eats first. Yeah. No, are you kidding me? I'm well, hungry. You, well, maybe you should because there are scientific studies that show that when you take a picture of your food first, you enjoy it more. Oh, interesting. Because of things like delayed gratification mm -hmm. and it leads to increased saving, savoring. I'll, I'll give the actual scientific quotes. Momentary act of delaying consumption, which increases the savoring associated with consumption of pleasurable foods and in effect increases attitude and taste evaluations of the experience when consumption actually takes place. So that is all to say, if you take the time to take a picture of, it, of your food, you're actually going to enjoy it more after. You, you can give me all the scientific literature you want. There is no way I am letting the phone eat first. Hobie eats first. All right. <laughs> that is our show for today. Have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy watching tennis, go Coco, uh, football, or whatever else you're up to. And as always, go birds. Our email, morningbrewdaily at morningbrew.com is open 24-7 and we'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. Let's roll the credits. Emily Milliron is our editor and producer. Samantha Velas and Raymond Liu are our associate producers. Isabel Wynn is our technical director. Billy Menino is on audio. Hair and makeup is not happy at work. Okay, join the club. Devin Emery is our chief content officer and our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. I wish you all well. <laughs>